Work. When we consider man in the state of glory, we are, of necessity, seriously limited in our ability to discuss or even imagine life in that estate. We still live in a fallen world, which, though partially redeemed, still feels the effects of sin and death. We are subject to the frustrations not only of other men, but to those arising from our own far from perfectly sanctified natures. It can be safely added that most men are their own major source of frustration by virtue of their sins and follies. It is thus difficult for any of us to imagine a world without frustration, sin, or death. We do have definite indications, however, in Scripture concerning life in the state of glory. We cannot go beyond these indications, nor must we fall short of recognizing their clear meaning. We need to ask also, which of the many hints concerning the state of glory gives us a key which ties together the fourfold estate of man? The answer is that it is work, which is the connecting link in the activities of man in the states of innocence, the fall, grace, and glory. Schilder's comment was thus to the point. Covenant of works is the name given to the initial relationship between God and man. This relationship was a covenant simply because service of God is possible only in the form of a covenant. The term covenant of work was applied in retrospect, in contrast with covenant of grace, and the very covenant of grace adds depth and meaning to the concept of the covenant of works. It is evident, then, that the covenant of works must not be looked upon as merely temporary. It is rather the original, fundamental, and therefore irrevocable covenant. The sequence of events must be explained by their beginning, if we would see whither they tend. If we proceed from the covenant of grace as starting point, we go astray. But when we see the covenant of works as basic to all covenant relationship, we are on the right track. In other words, grace reestablished man in his ability to function again in his calling under God, namely to work purposefully and faithfully under God. To understand what work is, it is helpful to examine again the meaning of a key word, work, ergon, in the Greek. Ergon is also the origin of our word energy, which comes from en ergos, at or in work. The dictionary definition of energy is also of interest. 1. The power by which anything acts effectively to move or change other things or accomplish any result. 2. Habitual tendency to and readiness for effective action. Three. Power in active exercise, force in operation. Funk and Wagnalls. The religious origin of work is thus preserved in the word energy. The image of God in man cannot be reduced to work, but neither can it be separated from work. Man has been created in the image of God, who is maker of heaven and earth and all things therein. Knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion are useless in man unless put to work, both in time and in eternity. Man, therefore, was from the beginning created to work, to follow God's handiwork with his working mind and hand, and to develop all things under God and in terms of his purpose. God is omnipotent and omniscient mind. In man, mind and power focus in work. Work is the expression of man's energy, man's mind and power at work. Man's calling in the state of innocence was thus to work under God and to subdue all things and to exercise dominion over them under God. Genesis 1, 26-28. The goal of this work was the fulfillment of the kingdom of God on earth, putting God's rule and word into effective government through man in every realm of life. The sin of man did not set aside this calling, it merely frustrated it. But the calling remained, and the purpose of grace has been to restore man to that calling. 
But before considering the implications of grace for work, let us examine the meaning of sin and the state of sin for work. The curse was not work, but upon man's life and work. Work, wherein man was to realize the dominion and power of the kingdom, was placed under a curse. In other words, man's attempt to attain a world paradise were frustrated, because both his life and work were now tainted by sin. Moreover, work, instead of being man's life and joy, became a frustrating thing for man. In an ungodly era, men want to escape from work, because they find it so frustrating. In a godly age, men thrive in work. In an ungodly era like ours, it is a cause of difficulty to godly men that the conditions of work are so often governed by ungodly men and made frustrating. An Austrian Catholic and nobleman, Dr. Erich von Kuhnelt-Leyden, has analyzed the significance of the work ethic developed by Calvinism and Puritanism. He also sees a Confucian work ethic in China and Japan. In China, however, work is a part of a relativistic worldview, which makes gambling destructive of real capitalization and work does not lead to effective capitalization. In Japan, the impact of early Catholic missions on the Japanese character needs study, since it was deeper than normally recognized. As evidence of this Christian survival, prayers in Hebrew survived among many samurai and common people up to the 1930s at least. According to Kunith Leiden, work is despised in much of the world, including Latin America, and hence the lack of progress in those areas. Colonization by European powers was a costly expense to the mother countries because of the great expenses of roads, hospitals, personnel, and improvements, and the limited returns. Work in most places is limited and inefficient. In Uganda, farmers toil two to two and a half hours a day. At a hotel in India, where the speaker recently stayed, the help worked 45 minutes a day. You can't have a prosperous economy in India with those kind of work habits. If Indians would work, two states in the country could produce a food surplus for the entire nation. In South and Latin American countries, the work ethics are just not there. In Russia, most workers won't stay on the job more than seven hours a day, and there is rampant stealing, negligence, and dreaminess on the job. In a hotel, there's no breakfast before 9 a.m., and no store is open before 10 a.m. You don't get the proper motivation in socialism. In Russia, a worker can work all month just to buy a pair of shoes if he saves all his money. A factory director's wife must work to help support the family. Professors, however, are better off. Man in the state of sin dreams endlessly of creating a paradise on earth without God. This dream is a hopeless one because its realization is frustrated constantly by man's sin, whereby he poisons and destroys all that he attempts to do and by sinful man's inability to work effectively, whereby his efforts are feeble, cursed with a sense of frustration, and devoid when active, of meaning and true direction. It is significant that so many people, contrary to scripture, believe that work is a curse. They believe this because in a sinful world, sinful men often find work to be so. Work is a curse of men, as is leisure when men are sinners, because all their activities are then overshadowed by the curse. Charles Lamb, in his poem Living Without God in the World, 1799, spoke of man who, trusting in his mortal strength, leans on a shadowy staff, a staff of dreams. Man's shadowy staff, a staff of dreams, leads man to deny God in favor of his own imagination and to perish finally in his blindness. They wander loose about, they nothing see, themselves accept and creatures like themselves. Short-lived, short-sighted, impotent to save, so on their dissolute spirits soon or late. 
Destruction cometh like an armed man, or like a dream of murder in the night, withering their mortal faculties and breaking the bones of all their pride. In the state of grace, the redemptive work of Christ restores man to his calling, to his work. To the extent that the individual is sanctified, and to the extent that his area and place of work are redeemed ground and in process of being sanctified, to that extent the curse is removed from his work, and to that extent in work and ergos he can manifest as the image of God, the energy of God's image-bearer at work. The more clearly redeemed and sanctified the man and the ground he stands upon, the more energetic his work, and the more successful his capitalization under God. Men can become wealthy, of course, without faith, but true capitalism is a religious product. And it is not surprising, however inaccurate at points the thesis of Weber and Tawney, that it has been associated with the Protestant work ethics of Calvinism and Puritanism. Apart from a biblical faith, wealth is accumulated as much by fraud as by work, and it fails to capitalize society. The great wealth of the elite of old India and China failed to capitalize society. And in the modern West, as capitalism ceases to be Christian, it ceases to be a capitalization and becomes an exploitation. In part, also an exploitation by use of the state to gain subsidies and advantages. A free market economy in which godly work predominates is as little desired today by capital as by labor. Men's trust is not in work, but in statist policies and advantages, in a staff of dreams. True work is the religious energy of a society in action remaking all things in terms of God's kingdom, and developing the potentiality of all things in terms of his calling. The redeemed man is a working man. Work is no less important to the state of glory. According to Revelation 22.3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Lenski's comment on the meaning of the curse or of accursed is pertinent. To hang upon Zulon or wood was to be accursed. So Christ hung on the cross as one accursed of God. This is the mark of the old Jerusalem. Christ bore the curse and removed it from us. Nothing of the kind shall be, i.e. exist, any longer as it once existed in the case of the cross of Christ for our salvation. The foundation of the cross has attained its consummation. In the eternal city, the Zulon is entirely a wood of life. For here in this city, behold, the throne of God and of the Lamb, symbol of the eternal rule and dominion in the glory of God and the Lamb, in her, in this consummation, in this eternal union of these two, God and the Lamb, with us. The cross thus has a double meaning. It is both a symbol of the curse, of God's full and unswerving condemnation of sin, it is a sentence of death. It is for us also, both in the state of grace and in the state of glory, the tree of life. Because of the cross, we are re-established in life and blessed in our work. We have access to the throne of God and of the Lamb, and are a free people in Christ. All the conditions of frustration are gone, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Revelation 21.4 What work means in those circumstances is beyond our imagination. We can only dimly guess at it. It will be the unfrustrated and untainted energy of man applied to creation. It will be man's joyful expression of himself, of the form of the image of God within him, in terms of his own particular calling in nature. Thus, the new creation, contrary to popular myths, will have very few harpists more than it has now. It will have many of us finding our truest callings in a new world.